Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Athena Dixon, a co-host of the New Books and Poetry podcast via the New Books Network. Today I'll be speaking with Francis Donovan. Francis Donovan's chapbook, Mad Quick Hand at the Seashore, from Reaching Press in 2018, was named a finalist in the 2019 Lambda Literary Awards. Her publication credits include The Rumpus, Snapdragon, and Swim. An MFA candidate at Lesley University, she is a certified poet educator with mass poetry and has appeared as a featured reader at numerous venues. She once drove a bulldozer in a GLBT pride parade while wearing a bustier in combat boots. You can find her climbing hills in Boston and online at gardenofwords.com. Thank you so much, Francis, for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. So one of the things I like to do whenever I speak to someone, especially other writers, is to kind of start where your writing journey began. Um, just because oftentimes we look at poetry and fiction and prose as kind of like the culmination and kind of not the journey towards the book. So can you give us a little bit of a background of how you came to be a writer or kind of where this all sparked for you? Well, I come from a reading family. And I remember even as a very little girl listening to the Madeline podcasts um, and uh, just really loving the rhyme. Um, sorry, not the Madeline podcasts, but the, the Madeline books and just really loving the the rhyme in those books. I wrote my first poem while I was nine. I was um, swinging upside down on a tire swing. Uh, and it was all about spring and how much I loved spring. Um, I also remember early on at a, um, they had one of the, they do these things in the Northeast. It was weird. I was born in California and we moved to the Northeast when I was a little girl. And people in the Northeast are very, very concerned with like your heritage, meaning like where your people came from. <laughs> They would have these heritage days, and um, I'm of Irish descent, so I remember bringing in 100 years of Irish poetry, and the principal of the school took me in his office and tried to, like, interpret the poetry with me, <laughs> like, at the age of eight. I was like, I just like to read it. <laughs> I don't want to understand what it means. <laughs> and so from there, did you continue on, like, through middle school and high school writing, doing any kind of writing for, like, school newspapers? things or did you kind of take a break from writing? No, it was always a pretty strong part of my identity. Um, I continued to write poetry. Um, when I was in junior high school, I qualified for um, a, uh, a summer enrichment program and I studied writing there. Um, I really wanted to do fiction writing, but you had to go through all of these expository writing classes, which of course was a good idea. So by the time I got to high school, I already had more of a grounding in writing than a lot of um, freshmen did. And I was still writing poetry. And there was a writing center in high school. And um, the, the director of the writing center was very encouraging of me. She was constantly finding places for me to submit to um, contests and such. And so that was good because I was encouraged. But I think also it was, it was a little bit of that whole child star phenomenon 
I just began to think that it was always going to be as easy. I was always going to be this big fish in a little pond. And I wish that 20 years ago, somebody had told me that you're going to have to deal with a lot, a lot of rejection in order to become a published poet. So I went to Vassar, which had a very good English program, but really didn't have much of a creative writing program at all. Um, didn't know anything about the Poe biz, you know. I think I sent a couple of poems off to the New Yorker and surprise, surprise, they rejected me and that was pretty much it. So after Paul, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so you're from Vassar, did you kind of take a time to do other careers or did you stick strictly to kind of a writing type um, career after that? Yeah, no, I, um, I totally um, took a left turn into web development. Um, I was trying to break into print publishing in New York City and failing dramatically. Um, and I, I ended up um, having to move um, to central Connecticut. Um, and like the closest thing to publishing they had there was a newspaper. So I submitted my resume to a newspaper and a woman who um, worked for a website got a hold of my resume and I started working doing editorial work um, on websites. This is in like 1996. So the whole industry yeah. was very new. And it really appealed to me because it was a way for me to get my poetry out there without having to run the gauntlet of editors of magazines, yeah. et cetera. And this was still like, it, it was a, just a big wide open place. There were no blogs. Um, yeah. There was no real online media. There was new media, but it wasn't, it just wasn't the same thing. So, um, so yeah, I did that. I was a, I was a guide for, um, mining co. I don't know if you remember mining co or about.com. Uh, um, pretty big for a while. So, um, I was the about.com guide to pagan Wiccan religion. <laughs> and, um, and so I would have to write, um, features for, for that website. Um, and I continued to write poetry, but it really fell by the wayside. Um, when I moved to Boston, there weren't really a lot of content jobs in Boston. So I kind of followed the money and the jobs into um, more uh, coding and front end development and design. Um, and eventually after years of working at startups and then working for myself, I got a job with the big healthcare company and in the IT department. And that's really what gave me the stability to go back to the poetry um, and take it more seriously. So I think. I think it really started with an artist way group in about 2003, um, which I highly recommend. I think it can be an incredibly transformative experience. I really appreciated the focus in the artist way on kind of reclaiming that sense of play that you get, um, that you kind of intuitively have when you're a child. Um, but it was a process, you know, Boston has a literary scene. Um, it's a pretty good one. It's pretty varied. Um, but it still kind of takes you a while. Nobody's going to take you aside and tell you, well, this is how things are done. So I, I did a lot of stumbling around in the dark. Now, how did you come to um, enter the Leslie um, University MFA program, which you're still a student in right now? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think as I saw, as I, be, as I began to pursue a particular kind of poetry, I mean, there's kind of a fork in the road, I think, for most poets. And one avenue that you can go down is slam and performance poetry. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I don't have the kind of performance gene, I think, that that requires. I was always more interested in work that is meant to be read aloud, but also 
meant to be read on the page. Um, and as I started looking at the poets that I admired and the publications that I wanted to be published in, I, I just saw that the MFA really seemed to be not a luxury, as some people have said it can be, but really as kind of the, the cost of entry. Um, so I thought about it. I thought about it. Um, it took me a long time to convince myself, and it took the encouragement of people around me um, to decide to to seriously start investigating and applying to MFA programs. And I looked at three. I mean, I did a lot of research. At the time, Poets and Writers was still doing rankings of, um, of MFA programs. They stopped doing that. I think there was some concern about the criteria that they were using. <laughs> um, but the three that I looked at uh, most seriously were Goddard, um, which is the college that kind of pioneered the low residency model, and, and Vermont College of Fine Arts which is a very well-respected program. I'd say um, there's kind of Warren Wilson at the very top of the low-res programs and then Vermont College is kind of right right underneath them. Um, and Leslie was also highly rated. It was a newer program. Um, and when I visited Goddard and when I visited Vermont College, at the end of each visit, I was like, this is the place I'm going to go. This is absolutely it. And when I visited Leslie, it was the same thing. <laughs> I was really fortunate. I was I was accepted to all three, um, but Leslie recruited me really aggressively. Um, they really wanted me to go there. I, I got a call from the director of admissions before I even got my acceptance letter, um, and um, and they gave me a pretty nice um, scholarship as well. So that combined with the fact that it was in Cambridge, um, where I used to live, um, that was kind of what did it for me. And sometimes I wonder, you know what would have been like if I had gone to Vermont College or Goddard instead, but at the end of the day, you can't really second guess yourself. So what are you actually working on right now? Um, are you doing a creative thesis or are you doing kind of a combination of research and creative thesis? Yeah, I'm coming up on the end of my fourth semester. So um, you do your, uh, your scholarly critical article um, in your third semester, and then the fourth semester at Leslie is um, dedicated entirely to putting together the thesis manuscript. So it's gone through a number of iterations. Um, it has to be no more than 60 pages. So I've had to put things in and take them out and put things in and take them out. Um, and um, I've, I've had the opportunity to really reimagine some poems, which has been good. Um, when it came time to start putting together the thesis, I had a lot of poems that I'd been writing about princesses. Um, which is kind of interesting because I was never much of a princess girl when I was a when I was a little girl, but I was interested in that archetype. And some of it for me was about going back and re-examining some childhood experiences and maybe reclaiming reclaiming the part of me that wanted to be a princess but wasn't. But it wasn't just about me and my childhood experiences. I was also looking at the archetype of the princess and seeing how far it was that I could stretch it. I have a poem called Fox News Princess, a poem called Dirt Princess. <laughs> so, um, but the interesting thing about putting together the thesis is that a lot of the poems were new. Some, I have a few poems that I started writing even in my first semester. I have one long poem that's gone through a number of iterations, but a lot of them were actually very new for this packet. So, um, so that's been interesting because obviously the newer the poem, well, maybe not obviously, but a lot of times the newer the poem, the more work it needs. 
the more mm-hmm. rough it is. Um, so I felt in a way that I was a little at a disadvantage um, versus people who were putting in work that they'd been polishing for the last two years. But I think in the long run, it's good. I think thematically, I've had something that really comes together well. And I have been able to revisit some of the earlier poems that I've written and partly reimagine them for the sequence and and for the kind of arc of the book. Um, I think in one case, it actually really anchored a poem really so well. One of the things that I, I like, I really like to discuss with writers is helping to dispel the myth that there's a writer's life, like a singular experience. I think that sometimes we kind of think that we all come to the page in the same kind of way. Um, So I'm glad that we kind of got to talk a little bit about you coming to the MFA program, Um, especially as a person who's also been in a low res MFA um, and going into it after like the traditional age, you should be in the MFA supposedly. Um, So is there um, kind of a way that you approach the page? Do you have any kind of set writing process? How do you balance your writing life and everything that exists outside of that world? God, that's a great question. (laughs) I mean, I think it's an ongoing struggle. I, I mean, I think, I think most poets write because they can't not write. So that's part of it, but there is definitely a way in which, I can cultivate my craft more and I can cultivate generation of work. Um, I can't say that I've had a consistent, consistent writing practice, you know, over the last few decades. Um, What I've been doing now since I've been focusing more on revising um, is setting aside blocks of time during the day. Um, I've, I've been able to negotiate with my employer. So I work 32 hours a week. So Fridays are my writing days. Um, I, for years and years, uh, kept a journal in a, one of those composition books with the, with the modeled covers. Um, and I was very religious at one point about doing the three pages a day, the artist pages from Julia Cameron's artist way. I've changed things up a little bit since then. I've started using, um, a sketchbook instead of line pages, um, sometimes I find that um, drawing or in cartooning is a different way to get into the writing. Um, I try and make sure that I get um, a free write in at least a few times a week. And a lot of times what I'll do is set a timer, a 10 minute timer. I also try and write down my dreams. So are there any particular things that kind of really always get you towards writing? Um, like a certain smell or a sound or do you have... Um a certain kind of place that you sit that always kind of gets your creative juices flowing or is it kind of dependent on the work that's coming forth um, at that particular time? I think it can vary. I mean, I'm fortunate in that I do have a nice home office. Um, You know, I also have to use it for my day job, which doesn't have anything to do with poetry, but um, it's a, it's a pretty pleasant place. I, I actually made the decision not to use a monitor. I just use a laptop so that I can, close my computer and get it out of the way and have a blank desk for when I need to. Um, I also think artist dates are really important. Um, you know, taking time to refill the well to really kind of let myself off the hook for generating new work. Um, I'm fortunate in Boston. There are a lot of really great museums. Most recently I went to the Isabella Stewart Gardner museum which is just gorgeous. This insanely rich woman, like at the turn of the last century, went to Venice and loved the 
palaces in Venice so much that she came back to Boston and built one. So you go in there in the middle of the winter time and there's this green courtyard, which is really lovely. Um, yeah. And I think also the other thing that can really inspire me is reading really, really good poetry. There was a professor in one of those seminars in this last residency who said that, um, poets write, read other poets for permission. And, um, I could, I could really identify with that. Sometimes it's permission. Sometimes it's like, wow, I never thought about writing about that. Um, then that makes me want to write about it. So I wanted to kind of get to your, your chapbook now, um, Mad Quick Hand of the Seashore, um, which is a collection of love poems. So very first thing, could you kind of give me a little bit of background on the title itself? Uh, yeah, it's a line from the first poem in the collection. And so is there like, um, I, I was reading through it, like my, I wish you could see my copy of it. It's like have sticky notes and highlights and notes in the margins mm-hmm. and things. Um, I loved um, reading this. I read it aloud. I kind of recommended it to some friends, um, particular lines and, and and just kind of poems as wholes. So one of the things as I was kind of discussing this with myself and with some of my friends was that you are a very, very fluid writer, that there were several times during my readings of the collection that I noted there was like this flip in perspective um, that brought the readers into a new direction. And it wasn't done in a very heavy-handed way at all. It was kind of very subtle. And I noticed it a couple of times, um, especially in the poem for Mark with the Good Hands. Um, so when you're writing your poems, and especially the poems in this collection, do you find that you um, use like kind of shifts in perspective and in time and in speaker and in, in voice to kind of help your readers move through the scenes and make them a little bit more immersive? You know, I have to say... It's- it's a pretty intuitive process for me. Um, I know that's kind of not the good poet way of saying it. I, I know that a lot of times when I'm reading poetry with other people, people are like, oh, they did that very intentionally. Um, but especially these poems, which were written, uh, a lot of these poems are 20 years old. Part of the reason why I published this chapbook myself is that I just wanted to get these poems out there so that I could um, focus on on finding publishers for some of my newer work. Um, so I think a lot of this was kind of instinctive. Um, that being said, I they did go through an awful lot of revision. So I don't know how well that answers your question, but <laughs> I mean, I guess it's a good thing. Of like, I think there is no kind of like real answer <laughs> to the question um, because I think again it goes back to what we were just talking about. How like we have this idea that there's this like standard writer's practice or the standard writer's life or how we approach things. Um, and it's especially interesting because coming from a person who is not, um, I, I, it's a weird way to say it, like a traditional um, MFA student age, um, that you kind of have this this wealth of knowledge that kind of helps you move into the work a little bit differently, that you're not kind of trying to display all of your MFA tricks on the page. You're actually just writing what comes organically, which is a beautiful thing. Thank um, you. Nice and had you not, yes, and had you not said that some of these poems are 20 years old, I would have never, ever even thought that. They're very fresh and they're beautiful. Oh, um, thank you. So one of the things I also looked at um, while I was reading the collection was that you have um, an ability to move the speaker from an observer to an actor. Um, so I was looking at the very last poem of the collection, The Teenagers, um, especially after stanza three, there was this shift um, where the speaker was kind of like observing this couple 
And then it became this beautiful kind of widening of the lens that encompasses the whole world. Um, so do you give thought to that telescoping as well? Um, are you kind of approaching your subject matter as like a very like microcosm and then you kind of explode it out? Or is it kind of um, you're trying to take the, the larger world and distill it down? I think that probably is more intentional. I, I think that um, it's it's not unusual for me to focus on a particular moment in time and then make a leap, uh, an associative leap or a leap to something that it reminds me of. Um, that that poem, I, I have such a good feeling about that poem because I still remember that sense of expansiveness and kind of like open love um, that I felt at that poem. You, you hear some of that too in Midwinter Provincetown. Um, the, the speaker, uh, or actually, is it the speaker? Yeah, says um, to the woman at the coffee shop um, who's got her hair tied up got her curly hair tied up in a in a kerchief she says i am sure it's beautiful you say the love not sexual but open and that was something that i wanted to explore in this in this um work too i mean there's a definite narrative there's a definite arc so that the poems really are meant to be read from start to finish obviously not everybody writes or not everybody reads books of poems that way but i thought really carefully about the ordering um, but it's also, it, it is not just romantic and sexual love that's being explored here. So that was interesting that you brought up the um, the poem about Provincetown because I've been there and I was reading it and just reading the collection as a whole. And I was like, I feel like I am in this world is both simultaneous, like this beautiful beach setting, but also kind of like this gray, like beach town that's like shuttered for the winter. Um and you again, just like you did with the turns and perspective, you did it in a way that wasn't like over, like you weren't grabbing the reader and saying, okay, this is what I want you to see. But just by the word choice and the way you, you ordered everything on the page and, every, and the way you kind of ordered the actual collection made it very, very immersive. So when you're kind of creating these poems and, and ordering this collection, did you approach scene building specifically or was it kind of the content itself um, that kind of ordered it the way that it went? No, again, I think it, at least with this collection, it was a very kind of intuitive process. Um, the ordering is definitely something that I that I thought a lot about. Um, but in terms of like the shifts in perspective and the in the poems, that's just kind of how my mind works. If that makes sense. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm glad that you've enjoyed the collection. Um, that one long poem, Midwinter Provincetown, definitely. Um, not Midwinter Provincetown, the long poem Letters from Provincetown definitely went through a lot of iterations. I was thinking as I was going through it and I was reading it and reading it and reading it. Um, and I think out of the collection, um, one of my favorite pieces was Itinerary for Robin. Um, I read that first line, I want to kiss you with all the joinings of your body. And I kind of like just melted in my chair. I'm like this is <laughs> absolutely beautiful. Actually, that's what I wrote in the actual book is absolutely beautiful. Uh, so one of the things that like that kind of took me to was the blurb on the back from Grey Held. Um, it says that there is a hunting for love. There is a basking in love. There is a longing. So are these poems and even the collection as a whole kind of a rumination on how love or relationships morph and changes as individuals? Um, especially not just like you said, not just romantic love or sexual love, but just love in general for the world. Is that something that you were thinking about? I mean, I think 
I think for me, a lot of this book was about my own personal journey with love, um, starting from my late teens and early 20s um, into my late 30s. So in some ways, it's it's not an exact chronicle, but it, it kind of is an impression of, of different relationships that I had and, and mm-hmm. um, different how how every person is different does that 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 sounds really when you say it like that (laughs) and also you kind of have these 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 three particular poems stood out for me um just because i think that there was this um this vulnerability with the speaker um especially with the kind of the changing of themselves to help or to um, please others. So those poems were Sunflower Artichokes, Rest Stop I-90, and The Well-Being of Women. Um, but there was a transformation of those speakers um, in the pieces, whether it be like the walls coming up or the, um, the actual physical change of the underwear from the white cotton to the lace um, to the changing of like coming to these words in, in a way of writing. Um, so I was really kind of struck like there's this way that you have of writing the speaker that is very observational, but also very open. And, and that openness is allowing the, the reader to come in and say, I'm now observing you observing the world, which I think takes a very deft hand to do. Um, so I'm very glad that I was able to kind of experience this. Um, and with that being said, do you think that there is a change? Like some of these poems are like um, a lot older, you said, to what you're writing now. Have you seen kind of your writing morph over the years or is there some kind of core part of that poetry that's still the same for you? Yeah, no, I think my voice is pretty, my voice is pretty different now. Um, I think I was talking with a, a much more experienced poet and we were, she was talking about how at the beginning when you're writing love poems, you're just working against cliche. <laughs> and as you get older, how you kind of have to invent a new language for things. I mean, there are definitely still some poems about love in my current collection, but I'd say it it more has to do with like an interior landscape. Um, so, but that sense of the vulnerability of the speaker, I think that that's something actually that I struggled with a lot in the in my more recent poems. Um, you know, in these, I would say that the the difference between the speaker and these poems and myself is pretty slim. I mean, as you know, whenever you write a poem, it sort of takes on a life of its own and the speaker might speak from your experience, but isn't exactly the same. But in my, in the, in the project that I'm working on now, I'm dealing with some more difficult subject matter. And so I've invented some alter egos, which help me to, um, say things that couldn't be said if the I and the speaker were me. Does that make sense? So do you um, cross over into any other genres at all? Or are you strictly writing poetry? Are you writing any memoir, um, any fiction at all? Well, when I was younger, I thought that I should be a, that I should be a fiction writer. <laughs> I mean, what I've come to realize is like once you hit 40, you realize that your time is very limited, um, especially if you do have a day job and other obligations aside from writing. So I've really made a decision in the last few years to just focus on poetry. Um, I have written some fiction, some short fiction. Um, I 
have kept a blog for more than 20 years, although a lot of that um, has been stripped. Uh, I did a lot of it and kind of in like semi-walled garden settings. Like I did a lot of stuff on LiveJournal. So some of the more personal stuff I've stripped off of the current blog. But if you go to gardenofwords.com, you can you can poke around and and end up with with things that go back to um, go back to the early aughts. Um, and so, you know, I've done a lot of writing, but I haven't really focused on on craft with fiction or with memoir the same way that I have with poetry. I think that someday I'd like to write a genre fiction book, but again, that's not really what I'm focusing on right now. I really enjoy reading science fiction and, and, um, and fantasy type books and uh, I've had an idea for one, but it's funny because at Leslie, they, there is some crossover among genres. One of the, one of the other things that attracted me to me to the program there is that they have these interdisciplinary studies courses that you take along with your main course of study. Um, but rather than um, choosing to write, to do like an IS in fiction or something like that, I actually did all poetry adjacent stuff. <laughs> so like I took one course on the art of the chapbook. It was a course that I designed with the instructor and that's actually how this manuscript ended up getting published. Because I had this idea that I wanted to be able to do the kind of really book arts, fine art kind of um, chapbook that you see from something like Redbird Press or Pork Belly Press. Um, but the more research I did, did into it and the more kind of practical prototypes that I made, the more I realized I really didn't have the resources myself to do that. So the chapbook itself was recently nominated for Alma Lambda Literary Award. So congratulations on that. Um, how do the, the how does that kind of like feel to be recognized um, in such a way, especially for a work that is kind of like at some level was like an experiment to get out into the world? Yeah, it it feels, you know, it's funny. I don't think that I would have become a finalist if I hadn't self-published. I'm not sure. A, I, if I were trying to get this published by somebody else, I would probably still be, you know, running the gauntlet of many, many um, rejections, which is why I wanted to get it out there so that I could save the good stuff for those rejections. <laughs> um, but also because I published it myself, I was able to submit it myself to the to the Lammies. Um, so, but it's very surreal. Um, my reaction when I first got the, the email saying that I was a finalist was actually to cry uncontrollably for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and I, I almost immediately started worrying about how I was going to be able to go to the actual award ceremony. Um, but it's also been, it's, it's been really amazing and really humbling to be, um, kind of on a short list with some really, really accomplished poets like Fatima Ashgar um, and Marcelo um, Hernandez Castillo and Dwayne uh, John. Um, and it's been great because it's also helped me to um, connect with a community of queer and especially bi poets. The bisexual poetry category actually didn't even exist the last few years. They didn't have enough entries. So I really lucked out. <laughs> the timing was, was good. And there's like, um, I know that as a, a writer who can be considered marginalized, um, both on your side and my side, what kind of changes or what kind of things are you hopeful and seeing when it comes to kind of like the publishing industry and the canon? I know that we in this industry have had like this ongoing conversation about diversity and what diversity actually is. 
Um, are there any things that you see that um, are encouraging um, within the canon or things that are kind of a little discouraging considering how far we are supposed to be into this conversation? Well, I mean, I think it's an ongoing battle. Um, you have to remember that I came out in 1993. So things have changed a lot in some ways since then uh, for queer people in particular and not so much in other ways. Um, I think that for me, what I notice about what's been happening over the course of the last few years is that, first of all, I'm much more aware of issues as they relate to race and how black and brown people move through the world um, mm -hmm. and have been trying to be a better ally in that way. And there's also a lot more awareness and acceptance of and support for trans people. Um, how that works in publishing is kind of interesting. I mean, I think you know, it's really kind of amazing what's happened in the last 15 years or so with small presses and with online publications. Um, there are so many more avenues to be read. Uh, it's a very noisy space, but there are, you know, many publications that say that they focus on mar marginalized voices. That being said, I'm not sure that like the kind of the canon, as you put it, the literary establishment has changed all that much, like the New Yorker or the Atlantic or the Boston Review or the Paris Review, kind of the big, big names. Um, I think in a way, sometimes it just becomes that there may be a, a, a handful of voices that are let in and then that becomes like the charge of diversity. And then there's a whole world of voices that are kind of still left out of that conversation. Yes, exactly. Tokenism. Tokenism is a thing. So. But that being said, I do think it's really encouraging that there, it seems to me, and I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me like there's more of a sense of solidarity among different marginalized communities than there used to be. Yeah. Do you get that sense? I do. Um, I think especially because, like you said, there are now, there is now this ability to kind of create your own space. And I think before, um, a lot of marginalized writers may have been more concerned with fitting into what it already existed versus creating your own thing. It's kind of like um, creating your own um, table. As Solange said, a seat at the table. Like, so instead of being at, asking to be let into these doors, we're saying, okay, so you don't want us to be here. So then we're going to create our own space. Um, yeah. And then when you see the light that comes from that space and you're going to want to be a part of it, but, and, and that's fine, but you now have to address the other issues that are going on. Um, and I think that you have, um, presses, like small presses, like you said, online journals. You have um, now publishing and PR firms run by people of color and um, things of that nature that didn't have, like didn't exist before. Like you have agents of color, you have agents who are trans, you have agents who are part of the queer community that now are saying that these are the voices that we need to champion. And if you're not going to let us in, we're going to do it ourselves. Yeah. And I have to say another thing that's been very helpful for me is as much as Facebook has many, many problems, Facebook in particular, social media to a certain extent, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, but I belong to a few communities on Facebook that have been very helpful in helping me to network with like-minded writers and poets. Just kind of like taking the avenues that you do have and kind of expanding them as far as you possibly can in order to kind of get the work out into the world. Yeah, I mean, that was always the promise of the internet. That was one of the things that really appealed to me when I discovered the information superhighway, you know, was that you could connect with people outside of your geographical area with whom you were like-minded. Um, and as a woman, a feminist, a queer woman, and a, a few other, you know, experiences that I have, 
it didn't always connect with kind of larger mainstream communities. So, and I think that's still true. Unfortunately, many other kinds of communities like white nationalists and ISIS and other kinds have also discovered that the internet is a helpful way to connect. But that's what happens when things get crowded. (laughs) That is true. So I just have a couple of more questions for you. The first one is, um, do you have any advice for younger writers or even specifically newer writers who are kind of coming into this um, this writing space and finding their footing? Things like you've kind of learned over the years or things that you're still trying to unteach yourself that you were taught about writing from the very beginning? Can I just start by saying that it's so surreal to be asked that question? <laughs> because I've interviewed many people and asked that question as Um, I mean, I think the main thing is that you need to find your tribe. Um, You need to find a group of people, a group of writers who will, where you can offer each other mutual support. Um, And that tribe might be not where you expect it. Um, You know, I think that um, visiting mics and reading open mics and reading series in your area um, can be one avenue. Um, Social media is really helpful. I find that for myself, I really need in-person contact. So I've been fortunate enough to belong to a few writing groups over the years. Um, And to really value the longevity of those relationships. I I think sometimes um, when people get a little bit of poetry fame, which we all know is kind of laughable fame, um, (laughs) the instinct might be to abandon your old friends, but don't do that. And then I guess the other thing I would say, the thing that I wish, really wish somebody had told me um, years ago is expect a lot of rejection when you send your work out. Um, I I usually expect about 20 no's to one yes. Um, And so it's really helpful to set goals for yourself. Like I try and do about five submissions a week. Um, That's something that I have been doing while I was getting my MFA. Obviously, I was really focusing more on craft. Um, And then probably the best piece of advice that I ever heard, one of the things that made this book possible, was don't ask for permission. If you don't find the scene that you feel comfortable in, create that scene, you know, build that table, make that reading series, um, start that publication, self-publish that chapbook, you know. Um, And just, you know, you're doing this because there's intrinsic value to it. So that's the other thing that I would say is really important is to hold on to that intrinsic value. And if you find yourself burning out, if you find yourself getting really tired and discouraged, guess what, we all get discouraged. I can't tell you how many moments of existential dread I've had over the years and will continue to have. Just put it down for a little while and refill that well. Find something that really feeds you spiritually or artistically. And whether that's going to the beach, whether that's going to museum, whether that's going to the movies, whether that's going to a toy store and looking around and not buying anything. Um, I think that that is such an important part of being an artist and that that refilling of the well, I think, is something that gets overlooked a lot of times if you're only looking at, you know, lit mags and Instagram. It's very much about output versus inputting. Like you have to input at some point in order to output something good. Exactly. Exactly. So my last question for you is before we go, are there any particular writers, books or or pieces of art that you recommend on things that you really love right now? Something you're currently reading that you want our listeners to know about? Well, I mean, 
just to go back for a minute to the question that you asked before about, uh, you know, how things are going with marginalized writers, you know, now versus then, I would say that probably one of the big encouraging things um, has been the way that Adrienne Rich, who's one of my personal heroes, has really made her way into the canon. Um, Adrienne Rich and Audrey Lord both. Um, so th there is hope. <laughs> um, so returning to Adrienne Rich's work um, is always really helpful. I've been really digging um, this. Uh, I just discovered the poet Diane Seuss. Um, she was shortlisted or maybe longlisted for the Pulitzer Prize recently. Um, and her latest book is called uh, Still Life with Two Dead Peacocks and a Girl. And it is amazing. She does some amazing stuff with American sentences. And she also has a lot of ekphrastic poems in there, you know, meaning poems that are inspired by or descriptions of or responses to works of art. Um, Still Life with uh, Two Dead Peacocks and a Girl is actually a, um, I want to say a Rembrandt. And she's got, she's got a number of pieces in there. Um, Fatima Ashgar's book, If They Come For Us, um, has also really been inspiring. Um, and uh, Marcelo Hernandez Castillo's um, Senzotle, uh, which is the Spanish word for a Mexican mockingbird. Um, and Dawn's um, We Play a Game. Those are some books that are standing out for me right now. So, so much for talking to us tonight. Um, it was a really, really good conversation. I really appreciate um, hearing your thoughts on just writing and marginalization and the book in itself. Um, again, Francis's book is titled Mad Quick Hand of the Seashore. Um, we will be sure to include information on how to purchase the book um, in our show description. And again, thank you so much again for speaking with me tonight, Francis. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm Athena Dixon, a co-host of the New Books and Poetry podcast via the New Books Network. Have a good evening.